Well, if you would, open your Bibles. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. And today we wrap up a five-part sermon series on the Holy Spirit titled, Knowing the Holy Spirit. And so far we've looked at the spirit of glory, we looked at the spirit of recreation, we looked at the spirit of union with Christ, and the, the spirit of adoption. And today we look at the spirit of holiness, which makes sense because holy is his first name, right? Um, but what does it mean to be holy? I think that word can elicit all kinds of responses, often from the same person. R.C. Sproul captures our responses to holiness in this quote. Here's what he writes. We tend to have mixed feelings about the holy. There is a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it, while at the same time we want to run away from it. We can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy, while part of us despises it. We can't live with it, and we can't live without it. With this in mind, let's dig in to our sermon text, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What comforting words. May you press them into us more fully. May we understand what you have done in and through Christ and in and through the Holy Spirit who now dwells in all who believe. Help us to, to glean great truths that we can press deep into our minds and into our souls, that we may walk in holiness that you have called us to, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
you got to be kidding me. You Christians are whacked out. Are you telling me that just because you believe in Jesus Christ, all of your sins are forgiven? All of them? Past, present, and future? Give me a break. In my 20s, those were the words I regularly spewed out towards Christians. Maybe you felt the same way in the past. Maybe you still do. See, back then I was so certain that Christianity was wrong. It was so obviously flawed. What kind of God would do such a stupid thing? I understand forgiving past sins, but future sins. Give me a break. The critics see what looks like a foolish bargain on God's part, right? It makes no sense that God would do such a thing, forgive all sins, past, present, and future. Now, it's true, the critics do get one thing right. They know one thing. They know our human nature. They know that no matter how earnest or careful we may be, every human being continues to sin. And it's true, isn't it? Just try to go throughout the day without one angry thought or selfish action or lust or laziness. The critics know we human beings have a sin problem that is out of our control. And so from their perspective, God is a fool to forgive future sins because it creates this unlimited liability on his part. They assume that God does not understand human nature, where in fact, God knows us far better than we do. The other thing the critics don't understand is that God's grace towards us as sinners isn't just forgiveness of sin. God's goal isn't forgiveness, it is fellowship. Let me repeat that. God's goal for us isn't forgiveness, it's fellowship. The repeated refrain throughout the entire Bible is God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so if God is holy, and if we are to be in fellowship with God, then he must make us to be holy. And check it out. To make us holy, God comes to dwell in his people. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen, my friends, the gospel message isn't simply come and have your sins forgiven. The message of the gospel is that, that God has pledged not just to forgive you, but to fill you, fill you with the spirit of holiness. Imagine you lived in a large city that was ravaged by crime and decay in this one community within that city. And imagine if a wealthy, powerful, and good mayor moved into that very neighborhood. This is my community, he says. I identify with these people. These are my people. Now, would crime drop overnight? No. Would homes and parks be restored to glory overnight? No. But would they be on the trajectory of restoration and glory? Yes. Yeah. That is what the gospel does. And instead of the wealthy, powerful, good mayor, God himself comes to dwell in us. God says, these are my people. Will they stop sinning overnight? No. 
Will they continue to sin to the very day they die? Yes. But these are my people. I identify with them. They are mine. That is why Paul is able to make that extravagant statement in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wealthy mayor has moved in, and he is never leaving. That is what the Christian life is about now. If the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, well, then that changes everything. Because the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the people of God. We are no longer the same. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the spirit of holiness that he makes us holy. And we're going to divide our time under two headings. First, we're going to look at positional holiness and then progressive holiness. First, positional holiness. The big idea here in this point is this. The spirit of holiness sets us apart as holy in Christ. Now, first, let's define some terms. What is holiness? What does the Bible mean by to be, to be holy? R.C. Sproul, in his book titled The Holiness of God, writes that, that no language dictionary is up to the task of defining the word holiness. This is partly to do with the fact that the word holy is used in more ways than one in the Bible. Now, it is customary to define holy as purity, free from every stain, perfect and immaculate in every detail. And so purity is usually what most of us think about when we hear the word holy, right? And certainly the Bible uses it in, in that way. But this idea of purity or of moral perfection is at best a secondary meaning uh, for the term in the Bible. You remember in uh, the, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is taken up into heaven and he's given this vision and, and he sees this, these remarkable six-winged angelic beasts called seraphim flying around the throne of the Lord in heaven. And remember what they cry out? Do you remember what they say? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, these seraphim are saying far more than purity, purity, purity. See, the primary meaning of the word holy is to set apart, to separate. The Hebrew word has the meaning of, of to cut or, or to separate. But even that falls short. It's more like a, a cut above. God's holiness is transcendent. And so when we think of the holiness of God, we are right to have in mind that, that God is transcendentally separate. He's completely other. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different and separate in a very special way. And so the Bible speaks of many things being set apart by God for his good purposes, for his glory. For instance, in the tabernacle and later in the temple, the priests would, they would sprinkle water and blood on ordinary common items like a table or bowls or, or utensils inside the tabernacle, candlesticks. Why would they do that? So that they would be set apart as holy unto special use of God himself. They went from being common 
items to being holy items. They were, in other words, consecrated or, or sanctified. They were made to be holy. At this Lord's table in a little while, we're going to gather, and, and usually I'll pray something along the lines of, Heavenly Father, we ask that you set aside these elements from their common use to their holy use for your glory and for, for our benefit. Now, have in mind this idea, though. That grape juice in those cups, it comes from a large plastic jug that we keep in a mini fridge. This bread, yeah, it's a loaf from King Colin. But when they sit upon this table and we gather in the name of Jesus, they are by God's grace and his power made to be holy for his glory and for our benefit. So does this make sense? Holiness is first and foremost positional. Our position before God is as a people made holy by God, set apart by God for his glory, for his purposes. This is a restoration of, of who we were made to be as human beings, right? God created Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and fill the earth, reflect my glory. And within, before one generation passed, that was all fallen. And so the message of the gospel is God is restoring that. And so he sets apart his people as holy unto himself. Listen, let this, let this sink in. God has done this. You cannot set yourself apart as holy unto God. You can't pick up the law of God and try to make yourself holy. Paul has already said that's fruitless. Just try it. You will fail. So God must do this work of setting us apart. And this is a work of the entire Trinity. We see this in verses 3 and 4. For God the Father has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law cannot make you holy. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he took on our sin. Uh, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Listen, Paul is saying that though the law of God is good, it is good. We are weak in the flesh. In other words, we cannot live out the law. We cannot help but sin. God's law really helps us to see that we are, in fact, sinful people. And, and so now the law isn't the path that we walk upon. It, it, can, it can only condemn us. For now we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so it's the Spirit of God that has set us apart. He's come to dwell in us. God has done what we cannot do. He sent his son to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in our place. And by trusting in him, the, the spirit of holiness now comes into us and directs our lives. To the skeptics who mock God and Christians for the fact that all of our sins, past, present, and future, is forgiven, well, there it is. God knows that when we human beings attempt to pick up the law and be good little boys and girls, God knows we cannot do it. He knows this already. He's not foolish. He knows this better than we do, which is why God's loving response isn't just forgiveness of sin over and over and over and over. God's response, it's to set us apart, yes, in our sinfulness and all. God alone can sanctify us, and it is the Holy Spirit who applies this work of God into our lives. 
So Christian, do you, do you see what God has done for you? When asked, are you holy? What is to be your joyful answer? I am holy. God has set me apart. He has sanctified me in Christ. I'm no longer in the flesh, but I am in the spirit. Christian, you are already holy in God's sight. The spirit of holiness has done this work. He has set you apart as holy. So so that's our position. From heaven's perspective, our position is set apart as holy unto God. Oh, it's so important that we, that we understand this truth, that we appropriate it into our lives. See, the more we understand our positional holiness, the more we experience our next point, which is progressive holiness. Here the idea is that the spirit of holiness who sets us apart as holy works in us as well to produce holiness. You know, in my kitchen, we've got this block with a bunch of knives in it. I'm sure you maybe have one as well. We use them all year long. I mean, we do all kinds of things with them. You know, we, yes, we cut meat and vegetables, but we also open up lots of boxes and mail, you know, all kinds of things, right? But we have this one special carving set. I bought it a few years ago uh, that we only bring out on Thanksgiving to, to cut up the bird. In a sense, it has been set apart for that special purpose. It has been made holy for that one special day. And so know this, I don't just pull out my Thanksgiving turkey carving knife to open Amazon boxes. So too, the things that are set apart by God as holy are not to be defiled or made impure by the wrong use. That's Paul's point. God has set us apart. He's freed us. We now have the spirit of holiness dwelling in us. And he works to produce the life that God intends for us. Did you notice all throughout this text, I don't really have time to go into it. It's kind of off topic. But juxtaposed is death and life, death and life, life and peace. All throughout. This work of the spirit really gives us life. Don't let anyone ever tell you, young people here, that the Christian life is drudgery and boredom and it steals joy from you. No, it is life. There is no other life outside of of God that is worth pursuing. But not only is God holy, we're made in his image to reflect his holiness. And so when God sets you apart as holy unto him, we begin this transformation process called sanctification. So understand this, you are sanctified, you are holy, but also there is this ongoing verb in your life called, called, you know, pursuing holiness or sanctification. It's a work of the Holy Spirit where we put off the old self and we put on the new self in Christ Jesus. When you come to understand that sanctification is meant to make you more like Jesus, we begin to desire it more and more in our lives. We want it, but it's hard. You know, I've yet to meet a genuine Christian who is pleased, who is happy with their progress in holiness. I've yet to meet one. See, the path to becoming more like Christ is a roller coaster ride, right? We truly desire to see God produce the fruit of the Spirit in us, but then we lose our temper, or we covet, or we hoard our possessions, or we make biting comments. 
And then that, that, that Britney Spears song starts playing in our head. Oops, I did it again. And what can happen is that our minds, what do they do? Tom had mentioned it earlier. Our minds start accusing us that the skeptics are right. What a miserable example of a Christian I am. What kind of God forgives a person's sin over and over and over again? What kind of God puts up with such feeble progress in his people? Well, he's a God who is absolutely committed to love and care for his cherished adopted children. Consider all the sinfulness that parents put up with with their own kids. I've witnessed parents whose children have horrible addiction problems, so bad that they they steal repeatedly from their mom and dad in order to fuel their addictions. So bad that though they promise to get cleaned up this time, they barely last a week at the rehab again. Listen, Christian, if earthly parents are so patient with the sinfulness of their children, how much more so is your Father in heaven patient with you? In chapter 7 of Romans, which is right before this passage, so that's the context for what we're looking at. Also, chapter 6 was, what shall we do? Go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's that question, this unlimited supply of grace. In Romans 7, though, right before our passage, Paul shows us what it's, what it's like to want to honor God in, in the spirit, but to fail in the flesh. In other words, the Christian life. Paul says that the holy things he wants to do, he doesn't do. And then the only unholy things he doesn't want to do, well, those he does. Here's what he says in chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. This is Paul the Apostle saying this. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does this sound familiar to your own lives? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. And then, of course, he cries out for this wonderful grace of God that is given to him. The Christian experienced this battle every day. That old Jew before being born again in Christ, that old Jew, the flesh with all of its sinful desires, it is still alive in you and it is still alive in me. This is not just a sermon for you. This is a sermon for me. It means that if you do not have this battle raging in you, this longing to love Christ and honor him in all you do, and yet regularly fail to be the person you long to be, if you do not experience this struggle, then I'm afraid you are not alive in Christ and you do not have peace with God. See, every Christian experiences this frustrating battle within. Well, it's fitting this Memorial Day weekend that next Sunday we'll commemorate the 77th anniversary of D-Day. Though the battles continued for a whole nother year, 
D-Day marked the turning point in the war, the liberation of Europe from the bondage of the Nazi regime. It had begun. For all intents and purposes, think about it, the war was won on D-Day. But in Europe, the German forces would not completely lay down their arms until VE Day, Victory Europe Day. Now, most likely you've heard this illustration before, perhaps even from my own lips. Uh, it's not from me. Uh, the German theologian Oscar Coleman originated it. And his point is this. For the Christian, D-Day has already occurred. The day of redemption has taken place in Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, and in his giving of the Holy Spirit. Jesus acted decisively against the powers of sin and death as he hung upon the cross. And so that day is, is here. It's done. And yet for the believer, the skirmishes with sin continue to be severe, don't they? They are real. They are painful. VE Day for the Christian is yet to come. The day when Christ returns and renews the entire universe, including God's people. And so, until that day, or until the day Jesus returns, whichever comes first, you will battle against the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. We Christians have a word for this. It's called sanctification. It's the lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, our temptation is to say, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm good enough now. I've stopped all the bong hits. I no longer sleep around like a stray dog. I'm good enough for now. But we must not settle in. We must battle for holiness in our lives. Look at the severity of the battle. I want you to just ponder this. Look at it in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Put to death, not bargain with, not come to agreement with. This is no armistice. armistice what is that? Somebody's pronounced that for me. There we go. Picture the image here, my friends. This is you with your hands around the neck of that old you before coming to faith in Christ, squeezing the very life out of it. It's a fight to the death. There is no tapping out. So don't let go. There is to be no mercy, no middle ground. Quite an image, right? Let me ask you, in all honesty, does this describe your life? Do you have a chokehold on your sin, or does it have a chokehold on you? Christian, we cannot make friends with our sin, whatever that may be. As Paul wrote in verse 12, we are not debtors to the flesh. We owe it nothing. Like, you know, stop coming around. I owe you nothing. Good riddance. The flesh leads to death, so we must kill it off. So the first thing we must acknowledge is that the battle is real. We cannot lay down our arms. We cannot try to make peace with sin. We cannot get comfortable with it. Christians, you understand that, right? So first we must acknowledge that the battle is real. 
and we must commit to engage in it. But also, here we go, we must also know that in this battle, we are not alone. The spirit of holiness powerfully works in us. We read in verse 14 that the adopted children of God are the ones who are led by the spirit of God. Verse 10, we read that, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, wow, that's just a big concept. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Seems like the spirit has a lot of work he's doing in our lives. In verse 13, we read this. If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit. Christian, you're not alone in this battle. God is so committed to you and your progress and holiness that he has come to dwell in you. Imagine if you were a general on a battlefield and you're heavily outnumbered by your enemy. But then a mighty ally sends a messenger. He says, General, my army will be there just in time. So begin your assault. We will arrive on the flank and win the battle. Doesn't the promise of a powerful ally give you all the confidence to enter into the battle? So too our battle with sin. We not only set our minds on the battle, but we believe in the promise that God has made to us. He has promised to be there in the battle. He won't get there before the battle. You've got to engage in the battle And that's when he's there. He doesn't doesn't show up when you're sitting on the couch. (laughs) But when you're in the battle, he's there. Do you believe that? I think that's why so many Christians don't see progress in their holiness. It's because they don't engage in it. They don't believe that the Spirit is there. So we set our minds. We believe that he will come to enter the battle. So we set our minds in the battle. We believe in the promise. Verse 11, the promise is true. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Christian, God's promise is that the very same spirit that raised Christ from the dead who dwells in you, the spirit of holiness, this same spirit will give life to our mortal bodies. That's a promise. Do you believe that? That is God's promise. He's not going to say, go battle sin and, oh, I forgot to show up. And my friends, this is not just grace for today. It's grace for tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And isn't it true to know that this future grace is ours in Christ? Does that not strengthen you to want to enter into this battle? Well, I recently saw a video on TikTok, yep, okay, uh, that chronicled the, a rescue of an old dying goldfish. You can also see it on YouTube. Feel free to Google it. You might want to wait a little bit, though. See, someone had had a goldfish for 10 years but did not care all that well for it. Instead of being gold in color, it was a dingy bluish black. 
It could not swim. It just sat there on the bottom of its tiny little dirty aquarium and it developed lesions on its belly. And believe it or not, 10 years later, the owner returned it to the pet store. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but then a young woman named Lacey Scott adopted it. She named the giant goldfish Monstro. It was the size of a softball in her hands, and it was in horrible shape, but she was determined to do her best to restore this adopted pet. She began by placing Monstro in a larger, clean aquarium in which she changed the water every day. And each time she changed it, she put in some aquarium salt to aid in the healing. Slowly, Monstro began to eat and swim a bit. Lacey then moved Monstro into a larger aquarium with other fish. And amazingly, Monstro began to change color. It was a long process, but over a period of months, Monstro changed from black to gold. Monstro now lives as a goldfish is intended to live, healthy, happy, full of life. This is a picture of what God does for us. We've looked at it this morning. He redeems us in Christ. He adopts us as our very own set apart in the aquarium of his grace with fresh mercy every day. By the spirit who dwells in us, we begin this process of turning from black sinfulness into golden holiness and all to the praise of the one who did this for us, our Father in heaven. This is the picture what we've been looking at this morning. Positional holiness. God has placed us in the aquarium of his adoptive grace. Progressive holiness. By the power of the spirit of holiness, we are made to be more and more like Christ. Christian, do you see your life this way? Do you see how God has taken you from that old, dead, sinful self and made you alive in Christ? And because we've been made holy, and because the spirit of holiness dwells in us, we now can live this new life that God gives us. And because we've been made holy and because the spirit of holiness dwells in us, we are new creatures. We can set our minds on things above. We can walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And guess what? When we fail, not only is there grace to rise up, but there is the promise and the power of the spirit of holiness to press on. What a life we have been given. Let's pray. Well, I guess we can do nothing but rejoice. Father, if this is true, and it is, your word says it is, you have set us apart as yours. I will be your God, and you will be my people, you say. You've set us apart as holy, and you call us to live as holy, but you've also dwelled in, dwell in us so that we can experience this holiness. How good is this gospel? Let the critics cry out in disbelief, but let us cry out with joy and delight. In the name of Jesus, amen.